0: Hello, I'm Edward McBride, finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Or should that be Money Sings? New York. New York. This week, I'll be talking to Dan Rosenheck and Wei Joe, who've been diving into the numbers behind the numbers in the world of Broadway musicals.
2: Broadway actually outperforms Hollywood at the high end. President Obama has said that it
1: is basically the only thing that he and Dick Cheney ever agree on.
0: But first, we're looking at whether investment firms are ripping off their customers and the firm that has been leading the charge against the established order.
1: Investing with Vanguard means one of the last things they're thinking about is investing. Vanguard being client-owned tells me they work for me. Its whole purpose is to make money for its clients. The only bottom line that matters is yours.
0: Those came from some adverts for The Vanguard Group, an asset management firm from Pennsylvania. It was small fry at first, attracting an initial investment of just $11 million in 1975, but it now manages roughly $3 trillion in assets, and its investors own 5% of all listed firms in America. I'm joined by Philip Coggin, the economist Buttonwood columnist, who follows the asset management industry for us. Philip, what separates Vanguard from other asset managers?
3: It's a classic disruptive innovator. As you say, it's been around for 40 years. And... It differs from the vast majority of other companies by being owned by the investors in the funds and not by outside shareholders. That means as it earns profits, it can use them to drive fees down even further as a virtuous circle. So as the fund management group gets larger and larger, the costs of managing 20 billion as opposed to 10 billion don't double.
0: Vanguard was also the inventor of the passive fund, right? The, where you'd simply try and, and follow a, a stock market index rather than to try and pick individual stocks that you think are going to do particularly well. And creating that kind of
3: fund to, has... totally changed the asset management industry, right? Yes, it has changed the industry because the traditional fund management firm tries to select those stocks or bonds, which they believe will outperform the rest, and they charge a higher fee for doing so. But academics have long since challenged this both on logic and in practice. So if the average performance of the market must equal the performance of the average investor by definition, and the market doesn't charge fees, the index doesn't charge fees, then the average investor is doomed to underperform the market after fees. So Vanguard, just by charging very low fees, gives its underlying investors an advantage. Now, it may well be that there are very smart people who can outperform the market. The tricky thing is identifying those investors in advance. You can identify them in the past and say managers who have outperformed for five, seven years or whatever. But what we don't know is whether those uh, performances are down to luck or skill. A certain proportion of managers always bound to beat the market over any given period. So the data over the years have shown that it's not possible to find reliable fund managers in advance who beat the index. And when
0: you think about it that that that's logical right? I mean if we knew in advance who these people were we'd all be investing with them and nobody would be investing with anybody else.
3: Exactly. Um, so this is an odd kind of industry unlike some others where you can identify the best Computer or the best car by consumer tests, you cannot identify in advance which managers will do best, and that's the interesting and also frustrating element of stock market investing.
0: But so this is the problem for the industry as a whole, right? There's, they're they're peddling something that sort of statistically can't work. You know, actively managed funds over the long run are bound to disappoint, as you say. Um, uh, is is it an industry that's that's
3: based on a totally false premise? Yes, it has been uh, because the effective charges over the long run are to eat into the returns that investors get. And those charges are inflated because people buy funds uh, after taking advice from brokers and investment advisers. Those brokers and investment advisers get paid by commissions Um, paid to them by the fund management company. Vanguard doesn't pay commissions it doesn't have the fees to pay commissions so the temptation for brokers and investment advisors is to recommend other higher charging funds. Uh, and as a result, Vanguard has been much slower to disrupt this industry than we've seen disruption occur in other industries such as uh, Google or Facebook.
0: But, but so that is changing and, and not just because of the rise of, of, of passive investing in, in firms like Vanguard, right? There's been a bit of a regulatory pushback against that kind of commission-based setup, hasn't there?
3: There has. In Britain, we had the Retail Distribution Review, which ruled out commission-based advice. Other Some other countries have followed. The US has a, had a hybrid model for many years in which you have both fee-charging advisors and brokers who are paid commissions, but the fee-charging ones have been steadily gaining market share. And it's highly uh, important over the long run. So the column that I'm writing this week is about a book Uh, on the finance industry called What They Do With Your Money by three academics, uh, and one of whom is a former fund manager, which looks at just the impact of fees on the average investor. So if you are a 25-year-old who saves for a pension for 40 years, then a 1% set of fees every year on your money will cut your final savings pot by 25%. 1.5% which when you add up all the fees, and it's not just investment management fees, there's other fees that you end up, end up being charged, will cut your savings by 38%. That's a huge impact on your retirement. And it's something the industry is only now really starting to tackle. And this problem of high fees, and then the massive dent it makes in people's savings,
0: that that's presumably only going to get worse in a world like we're experiencing at the moment where interest rates are low investment returns have been quite subdued that the fees take up a bigger share of those earnings than they would have done in, in healthier times for the
3: markets. Absolutely. With a treasury bond yield for over 10 years of about 2%, and if you're paying 1.5% in fees, at three quarters of that return gone. Uh, and of course, cash is yielding even less than uh, 1.5%. And so just finally, if,
0: if we are heading towards a world where more people invest through index funds, uh, companies
3: like Vanguard continue to grow, uh, are, are there drawbacks to, to that world? There are potential drawbacks if everybody is all invested in the same stocks to the same proportion. One is that there might be uh, the market might be less efficient in that fewer people are trying to seek out the top performing companies of the future. One is that there might be herding, so everybody stampedes in and out of the market at the same time. But I think these are at the moment, pretty small things to worry about relative to the huge impact that charges have taken over the years. Yes, if we ever got to the situation where 100% of the market was held by Vanguard, that would be a problem. But we're a long way from that. Philip Coggan, thank you very much. Thank you. So do you feel you're getting value
0: for money from your financial services? Let us know what you think by tweeting us at Economist Radio. There's email as well as Twitter. You can send a message to radio at And for a rousing finale, we're headed to Broadway. No longer a footnote in the entertainment industry, musical theatre has become an economic powerhouse on a scale far closer to Hollywood than you might imagine, bringing vast sums of money to those who make the right investments. Hits like the Book of Mormon have underscored this, but nothing has proved this point better than Hamilton. This unlikely smash of hard-to-imagine proportions written by Lin-Manuel Miranda is based on the life of one of America's founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. Are you ready for a cabinet meeting, huh? If we assume the debts to you a new line of credit, a financial diuretic How do you not get it? If we're regressive and competitive The union gets a boost, you'd rather give it a sedative a Last month, one of the most successful composers and investors in Broadway history, Andrew Lloyd Webber, joined Economist senior editor Anne McElvoy to talk about the business of Broadway and about Hamilton in particular.
3: I get the impression you're rather fascinated by Hamilton and by its success. And what that shows about musicals and about their present direction. What is it that interests you there about the economics of well, Hamilton?
4: Well, I mean, I think the first thing to be said about Hamilton is is that it is the first show I've seen in 50 years that I think does change the direction of musicals and is a totally tone, new tone of voice. I mean, so that's the real thing that has fascinated me. But what's happening is, is that they've woken up with a really big hit like a Hamilton to the fact that the money used to be being made on these shows. I'm thinking back to Phantom by the ticket Tuds. But with the way that ticketing can now be done directly and with it, with it, of course, what the show producer can now do is alter the price of the tickets themselves. So if you go to, say, Book of Mormon or Hamilton on Broadway or any of those sort of shows now and you want to book through the theatre, they're doing it like airline pricing. There is no price now for the top price. I mean, it might be $100 or $150 one night. More likely, you're going to be paying 1000
3: that's kinetic pricing. Eh? Yes,
4: and that's what's happened. That's, that's completely new. That's something it's, I, I've only encountered really in the last few years. Since that conversation, we've been digging into the data,
0: looking at the last 50 years of the Broadway money machine. Dan Rosenheck, our data editor, and Wade Joe, one of our US data journalists, have been getting their teeth into those numbers. Dan, I'll start with you. Just how big is Broadway becoming as a business?
2: Broadway's overall annual revenues are $1.3 billion a year at the moment. Now that might seem small in relation to Hollywood, whose domestic gross is about 10 times that, but Hollywood also plays everywhere in the country and produces a lot more films than Broadway produces musicals. If you focus on the most successful individual product shows, works from each genre, Broadway actually outperforms Hollywood at the high end. There are three Broadway musicals that have exceeded $1 billion in aggregate get gross. No film has ever broken that barrier. And globally, Phantom of the Opera has collected over $6 billion. Avatar, the best grossing film of all time, is not even at $3 billion.
1: So, Wade, what sort of shows do well? Well, historically, because Broadway is such a risky business, producers have been sort of fleeing to brands to sort of minimize their risk. But that's that's been changing recently.
0: Hamilton's proof of that, right?
1: Well, it, it hasn't really been changing, but Hamilton is sort of the exception to the rule. Interestingly enough, it is based on an 832-page biography on America's first Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, which is not exactly the sort of first topic you would pick when you were trying to make a hit Broadway show. But in
0: spite of that unpromising material, it's done phenomenally well.
1: Oh, it absolutely has. Uh, I don't think any Broadway show has ever become the sort of cultural force that Hamilton has become. President Obama has said that it is basically the only thing that he and Dick Cheney ever agree on. Financially, the show has been a tremendous success. It's averaging about $1.5 million of revenue a week.
0: But even those those numbers don't, don't tell the whole story in the sense that it, the promoters aren't making all the money uh, that is being made from Hamilton, right, Dan?
2: Not close. Um... Of that uh of that seventy five million reflects exclusively the face value of the tickets sold to the show, which average around one fifty or one sixty a ticket. And if you can find a way to get Hamilton tickets for one fifty, um I would like to take them off your hands because the current secondary market price exceeds a thousand dollars. That that's scalpers, the secondary market. Correct. At this point, the vast majority of the value of these tickets is not going to Lin-Manuel Miranda or the actors or the house. Uh, It's going to the middlemen. And were Hamilton to charge market price for its tickets, we would be looking at uh, could be double, could be triple, you know, just uh, magnitudes of revenue that would really put Hollywood to shame and could potentially transform the economics of the industry.
0: We heard Andrew Lloyd Webber talking earlier about some of the creative pricing that uh, theaters are beginning to experiment with. That'll help them to to reclaim some of the lost revenue you're talking about.
2: Some the top ticket price that's uh, listed in the data is 4.75, which is still less than half of the uh, minimum price of entry from from a scalper right now. Uh, so there's still plenty of money being left at the, on the table. And the average, as we said, is only 160 or so. So clearly that those dynamic pricing strategies uh, are not getting you know, even even halfway there.
0: So what's the magic formula in general? I mean, looking at your data across the, the sweep of recent decades, what are the sort of shows that, that do make money? And it, you know, if you were advising a theater producer, what would you be telling them to put on?
2: Definitely want to make a musical. Plays have short life fans that are not tourist friendly. Disney helps. The Lion King and Aladdin are basically the surest guaranteed sellouts on Broadway. Don't worry too much about pleasing the critics because we weren't able to find any newspaper reviews that had meaningful predictive power on revenue. If you can pull in a big Hollywood actor That will definitely give you a short-term boost in revenue. Certainly Al Pacino was sold out many performances of China Doll, which tended to get terrible reviews. But there's a flip side to that, which is that big Hollywood actors tend to go on and uh, go back to doing movies sooner rather than later, so it puts a limit on your total lifespan. Whereas uh, if you generate a crowd-pleasing, tourist-friendly musical, they can, like Phantom of the Opera, go for 30 years. So there you go, a how-to kit for putting on a hit Broadway musical Dan Wade, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's it for Money Talks. I'm Edward McBride. Goodbye.:
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at50 dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus.